Please turn with me, if you can, to Mark chapter 14, and we'll read from verse 32 to verse 42. Mark chapter 14, verse 32 to verse 42. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that, if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them asleep, found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise and let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Let's come before God and ask for his help. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is living and active and that it is sharper than a double-edged sword. We do thank you for the opportunity that we have even during this lockdown period, Lord, to open your word and to hear you speak to us. Father, this is your living word, and therefore I ask that you would help us to understand it, and as you have been helping us throughout this study of Mark, and I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would help us not only to understand it, but for us to receive it with our whole heart, and to apply this word to our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, Amen. I have titled this message this morning, The Obedience of Jesus. The Obedience of Jesus. In our first message on Mark 14, uh, verse 32 to verse 42, we looked at how the emotional suffering of Jesus saves us from sin and helps us in our emotional suffering. This morning, I want to talk to you uh, about a second aspect of this narrative. I want to talk to you about how the test of obedience Jesus faced in the Garden of Gethsemane saves us from our eternal disobedience against God. The name Gethsemane means a place of crushing. 
The name comes from the olive press located there, and you can imagine how the olive press works. You put in ripe, beautiful olives, then heavy stones uh, apply great pressure to these olives, and then precious oil flows out from the olives. All that remains in the, in the, in the olive press is power. This is a picture of what happens to Jesus in this account. It's a picture of what happens to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He has come to Gethsemane uh, for the start of his crushing, which culminates at the, at the cross, at Golgotha, where he is crushed through the cross itself. But through the crushing of his soul in Golgotha here, uh, through the crushing of his soul, precious and abundant life will flow for you and me. Out of his sorrows of Gethsemane will flow the oil of our salvation. In the Garden of Gethsemane, you see Jesus faces here an agonizing test to obey God. Uh, if he disobeys, he cannot save us from the wrath of God that you and I deserve. The good news of Jesus, the good news of Gethsemane, is that Jesus passed the test of obedience. He willingly allowed his human will to be crushed in obedience in order to deliver us from sin. And this is the truth I want us to learn to think about this morning. And I want us to apply this truth to our lives. We can summarize this truth uh, with a single sentence. The truth this passage is teaching us, which I want us to focus on today, is this. The obedience of Jesus saves us from our disobedience against God. The obedience of Jesus in Gethsemane saves you and I from our eternal disobedience against God. So let us unpack this truth in this passage to see where I have got that from. Uh, please look with me there at Mark 14, verse 32 to verse 42, which we just read. Now, you, if you look at verse 32, uh, you remember that it is a dark night on Thursday. Our Lord and his disciples have come to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. And Mark, like an next perfume director, has landed us on the scene through the eyewitness eyes of Peter. And if we're imagining this, we can see Jesus and three of his closest disciples, they are entering the Garden of Gethsemane. It's dark. And as they are entering the Garden of Gethsemane, perhaps if we look behind them, we can see that they have left behind the rest of the apostolic, apostolic gang lounging by the garden entrance. Uh, the eight disciples uh, have, have remained behind as Jesus and uh, James, Peter, and John go deeper into the grove of Gethsemane. As they walk deeper into the garden, uh, we can then see Jesus stopping. Uh, he tells his friends to let him go uh, so that he can pray alone, and he instructs them to wait there and pray. And here is how Mark describes the scene that's unfolding uh, before us in verse 32 to verse 34. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. 
and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he, that is Jesus, said to them, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And as our Lord walks further into the grove, as he leaves his three disciples behind, as he walks further, uh, we are told by Mark that he collapses uh, on the ground. He collapses to the ground in prayer. He is pleading to God for an end now to his deep distress that he's feeling. Verse 35 says, And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. Jesus here is in effect now, to our shock and surprise, saying to God, Father, if you can get me out of this one, I want out. Jesus is asking God if there is at all any alternative to service. He knows the cross is before him. And now he's asking, is the cross the only way to serve sinners? And if you like, there is an excruciating struggle, we noted this last week, within Jesus, within our Lord Jesus. He wants to obey his Father and save us from sin. But he looks at the cost, and the cost to himself is infinitely great. He's being punched to the heart by the prospect of the cross, by the prospect of the suffering ahead of him. But instead of the punch of temptation uh, that is filling inside him, knocking him away from God, the punch of temptation lands him on his knees. Luke 22 verse 40 says, speaking of Jesus, in his agony, he prayed earnestly. You know, the word for agony in the original language is agonia. It is based on the noun agon, which referred to a place gradiators fought to death. So the word that Luke uses there in Luke 22 verse 40 is really capturing the violent struggles that is going on within Jesus as he's praying earnestly, as he's praying that the hour might pass from him to quote Mark in our narrative. Jesus, if you like, is wrestling against the odds and is agonizing in prayer with every breath. And as we come back to Mark and we follow Mark on that video record, if we're watching this with Mark, and as we, we can see the camera, so to speak, focusing on Jesus there, kneeling in the Garden of Gethsemane, and then we catch a bit of audio as we listen closely in the shadows, we can hear our Lord weeping, and saying something in his own native language. He is crying out in desperation. Let's listen in on verse 36 of Mark 14. And the words coming out of Jesus are this. And he said, Abba, Father. You know, Abba is the 
baby's intimate name for the father in Aramaic, Jesus' mother tongue. It is, we might say, Dada in our English language, or, or where I come from in Zambia, it will be Tata in my language. Jesus, like a begging, cry, like a begging child, uh, is crying out to God in his mother tongue. And our Lord cries out in agony. He doesn't end just on saying, Abba, Father. He cries on further, doesn't he? He says, and he said in verse 36, Abba, Father. All things are possible for you. And then with one last gasp, we read on. Jesus prays, remove this cup from me. Between the last sentence, remove this cup from me, and the next sentence, lies an eternity. In that endless moment, Jesus passes from the shadow of temptation into the light of victory. As he has that thought of praying for the cup to be removed, he rejects the disobedience with the temptation of disobedience with obedience. Because we read on, don't we? He prays, remove this cup from me. And then he says, yet not what I will, but what you will. Jesus passes the test of obedience. He has obeyed the Father. And yet, it is only the beginning. It's only the first test. Because after checking on his disciples, briefly, Jesus finds himself again wrestling with God. Because we read on in verse 37 to verse 39. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same thing. What is the same thing Jesus is saying? He's praying verse 36, isn't it? Well, we, he prays, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Now, from what we have seen of our Lord Jesus Christ so far in Mark, this prayer to the Father to see if there is an alternative to the cross seems out of character, doesn't it? Because you see, Jesus has told us four times, in fact, more than four times, I think, that he is coming to Jerusalem to die for us. He knows that he must die physically to save us from our sin. Constantly he tells us it is written, doesn't it? 
as we've been going through Mark. He's aware of that. He has studied Isaiah 53. And of course in his divine nature, he knows everything. In Mark chapter 10, verse 41, he, he reminded us, didn't he, of what his mission was. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And then to do what? And to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus has come on a mission to die on the cross. In Mark 8, we saw our Lord Jesus rebuke Peter at Caesarea Philippi. Why did he rebuke Peter? Because Peter was trying to stop Jesus from coming to Jerusalem to die for our sins. Mark 8, verse 31 to 33, we read that. He says this, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and, and be what? Be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So as we think about all these different passages we've been going through Mark, and this is the benefit of going through Mark verse by verse, we have arrived here at Gethsemane with full knowledge that Jesus is ready to die physically on the cross. And so now we are in Gethsemane, and we, we, we're seeing, we're looking at the emotional sufferings of Jesus, which we explored in depth last week. And we are wondering to ourselves, what is crushing his heart? Why is there this tension within our Lord now? And of course the answer is in verse 36. In verse 36 we read, Jesus prays, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. We said last week that the cup is a picture of the judgment and wrath of God, which God intends to pour out on human evil, on all sinners, on all disobedient people that have rebelled against him. On all Adam's Adam himself and all of his descendants. On you and I. That's what's in that cup. That cup is filled with the wrath of God for you and for me. Jesus, therefore, is God the Son, is telling us, who has come to drink this cup of wrath instead of you and I. He has come to suffer the infinite punishment at the, at the hand of God that you deserve. Jesus, of course, has known about this cup of wrath. But Gethsemane is not about knowing. It is about reality. Jesus has known that's theory. But now in Gethsemane, Jesus is now beginning to test 
the cup of God's wrath. Our Lord is beginning to smell the stench of sin, of your sin and mine. Your sin, past, present, and future. That sin of mine and yours that will become his property on the cross. He's smelling the stench, the spiritual stench of that sin. He's beginning to feel the heat of the power of the omnipotent blows that will run riot against his soul on that cross. Jesus is beginning to feel the heat of the punishment he's going to endure for you and I. The punishment that you and I deserve. He's beginning to hear the cries of the evil demonic powers as they circle and taunt him. Even them, she were in the Garden of Gethsemane. As they call him one of their own. As they do that, Jesus is enduring that for your sake and mine. Jesus is, is beginning to see the spiritual darkness hide the face of his eternal father. The love, light, beauty, and goodness he has enjoyed is now fading away from him as he cries there in Gethsemane. For you and for me. Now let us remember that Jesus is one person with two natures. One person with two wills. He is 100% God, so he has a divine will. And he is 100% man, he has therefore a human will. And together the two natures of Jesus make one person. In Gethsemane, here, Jesus in his human nature, he's wrestling with his divine nature. The man Jesus, the man Jesus, his will, the, 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 the human will, is asking God, we might say. He's asking God, is there any other alternative to the cross? As God the Son, Jesus, of course, has already fully submitted. It is his idea to come and die. He has willingly already offered himself up to die for us on the cross. He knows this is the only way. But now the human will of Jesus, which of course has already submitted perfectly so far, Every moment of Jesus' life, his human will perfectly submitted or was brought in conformity with his divine will. His human will, uh, which has already submitted, of course now is being asked to submit again. The human will of Jesus is being asked to deny itself again. To allow itself to be crushed for us. We must think about that while still remembering that Jesus is one person with two natures, not two people. One person with two natures. And that brings us to the crux of the test that our Lord Jesus is facing. 
Because you see, Jesus as God the Son is perfectly united with God the Father and God the Spirit in serving us from the wrath of God. There is no tension here within the Godhead. There is total unity within the triune God. Jesus, God the Son, has come willingly. As Stephen Shannock says, the Puritan, the Father proposed the cross not with more affection than the Son entertained it with delight. And yet we see in Gethsemane, what we see in Gethsemane is that in his humanity, our Lord is rightly trembling at the implication of suffering. Severance, we might say, on the cross. Jesus, in his humanity, rightly does not want to be made sin. He does not want to be disconnected from the eternal fellowship he enjoys with God. Do, do you see, beloved, what is at stake for us in this struggle, in this garden of Gethsemane? If Jesus does what is in his best human interest if he does not take up the cross we lose in fact we've already lost we just continue to lose forever if Jesus disobeys the will of his father or we might put it this way if the human will of Jesus is not brought in subjection on this issue, to the divine will. If Jesus insists on putting himself first, rather than God's will first, you and I must suffer at the hands of God. Someone has to shoulder the punishment for our sin. Either you do it, or Jesus must do it for you. Someone has to be crushed by God's wrath. To escape the wrath of God, you and I need Jesus to keep... We need our Lord Jesus to keep on saying, Not what I will, but what you will. We need Jesus to keep saying no to his human nature and yes to God. And thank God that after the third submission to God, our Lord Jesus gets up. He leaves the battleground, already bloody and already exhausted. He gets up and as a lamb led to the slaughter, he walks out willingly to his death. We read this in verse 42, verse 42. And again he came and found them sleeping. For their eyes were very heavy. And they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. 
Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Jesus is, is about to be arrested, but the spiritual war is as good as over now. Our Lord has already stood in our place and passed the test of obedience. In obeying the Father in the garden rather than any other place, our Lord has done this symbolically. He is symbolically triumphing where all of us in Adam failed. Do you remember in the Garden of Eden, our ancestor Adam disobeyed God. And all humanity, all the human race, fell into a state of disobedience as a result of Adam and Eve disobeying God in the Garden of Eden. We are all now by nature children of wrath. We are under the punishment and wrath of God, under the judgment of God. But in the Garden of Gethsemane, we see God the Son wearing the rags of human flesh, obeying God the Father in our place as one of us. He submits to God for you and I. You see, when we look at the CV of every human being, it only has one word written on it. And the word is sinner. Sinner. But on Jesus' CV, on his resume, there's only one word written on it. It is perfect. Perfect. Jesus is perfect. And the good news of Jesus is that Jesus has taken his perfect CV to the cross where he has swapped it with your sinful CV. He has swapped his obedient record for your disobedient record. On the cross, God the Father treated his perfect, obedient, beloved son as a disobedient sinner. He poured on Jesus all the wrath we deserve. And this is why Jesus died, beloved. He died in our place to swap his perfect obedient record for our disobedient record. And it, by doing that, he set us free from the wrath of God. Remember, I said that someone has to bear the wrath of God. The good news of Jesus is that he has borne the wrath of God on himself. Jesus died so that anyone who surrenders their life to Jesus as Lord, God immediately clothes him or her with the perfect obedience of Jesus. God now looks upon that person as if he or she has never disobeyed and will never disobey God. God declares that person righteous before him forever. What is a Christian, friend? What is a Christian? Well, a true Christian is a person who knows in her heart that she is a sinner by nature. She knows she can never obey God as God demands. 
She knows she's a sinner through and through. And so she is now trusting only in the perfect obedience of Jesus. The perfect obedience we see of Jesus here in Gethsemane. She's trusting on this perfect obedience of Jesus to serve her from sin. She's not looking to herself. She's looking to Jesus alone. And so she has come to Jesus and asked Jesus to forgive her of her sin, past, present, and future. To forgive her, her very self, her very sinful self. And she has asked Jesus now to give her a new heart and a new life that loves and obeys him. Does that describe you, friend? Have you surrendered to Jesus? Do you see yourself as a disobedient sinner? Do you see yourself as somebody who has no, nothing to hold on to except Christ? If you have not done that, friend, I ask you to come to Jesus now. He's waiting for you. He wants you to surrender your life to him. This is why Jesus is in Gethsemane. This is why Jesus went to the cross. He went there to die for you. To swap your sinful record for his perfect record. Jesus is saying to you this morning, do not trust in your effort. You can never be good enough for God. Trust in my perfect obedience and death for you. Let my death on the cross dress you in my perfect righteousness. Let my blood speak for you. Let me give you a new life with God forever. Stop trusting yourself. Stop putting your confidence in your deeds. Your deeds are like filthy rags. They are insufficient to keep the wrath of God at bay. Put your trust in me. And if you do that this morning, if you surrender your life to Jesus this morning, God will forgive you of your sins, past, present, and future. And he will come into your life to live with you, to give you a hope and a future with him. What about those of us who are already trusting in Jesus? What does the perfect obedience of Jesus mean for how we live every day? Well, we must keep on resting in the obedience of Jesus. We are saved by the obedience of Jesus here as, throughout his life and as we see here in Gethsemane. And we are saved, we are kept by the obedience of Jesus. So we must keep resting in the obedience of Jesus. The Garden of Gethsemane is a call for you and I to give up trying to relate to God based on our performance. We do this all the time as believers. We, we lean on our performance. Olivia has um, volunteered to help with the local food bank, uh, even though she is already way overcommitted. Why is Olivia doing this? Well, she has decided some, she decided some time back to be the best Christian for God. She feels it is better to wear out than rust out. 
Now she feels trapped. She feels trapped in her commitment to the food bank. Emily is struggling with the lockdown. She is always moody at home. She feels trapped with the kids. She does not want to talk to another Christian about it in the church. Why is that? Because she's worried about what people in church will think if she opens up about her struggle. She wants all faith, our faith in Jesus to look neat and tidy. So she has decided to keep up appearances. Isabella is in a different situation. She's feeling bitter. She has always done her best in life. And she makes every effort to serve the church. And she avoids having any unbelieving boyfriends. And yet Isabella looks at her life and she is not very happy. Because God has still not provided her with a husband. She feels God has not kept his side of the bargain. So Isabella is very angry with God. She finds little joy in prayer. She finds little joy in service. She's always close-tied. She never opens her hearts and struggles to others. Janet is in a slightly different situation. Janet's daughter is struggling with her school performance. She has tried everything to help her daughter. And the situation is robbing Janet of peace. She will not tell anyone about this. But when she's alone, she often wonders to herself, is there some sin that I have committed against God in the past that has led my daughter to struggle like this? Is God punishing me, perhaps, for some sin? These four women, all of them, share the same problem, a problem that all follow, many followers of Jesus, I would say probably all followers of Jesus, struggle with from time to time, and some people a lot more than others. The problem is this, they are constantly trying to earn God's approval. All of us do that. We know that we are served and kept in Jesus by the grace of God alone. We, we can recite Ephesians 2, verse 8 to 10, by grace we have been saved through faith. This is not our own doing. It is a gift of God, lest anyone should boast. We know that. We know salvation. We are kept in Jesus. We know we are saved and kept in Jesus by the grace of God, not because of our hard work. But you see, sometimes in the thick of life, in the pressure of life, we forget that truth. We know that we are children of God by His grace alone, but we live as if that grace which saves us only gets us through the door. Just through the door into the kingdom. But it is not part of life in the kingdom. We see, we live as if for the rest we must, of our lives in the kingdom of God, we must keep buying God off in case he changes his mind. So we must keep buying God off with our works or we'll lose him, we'll lose his comfort. And the result is that even though we, feel we, are, we know we are saved by grace and we are kept by grace, we live in the kingdom of God 
Not as beloved children that we are, we are in Christ. We live like slaves trying to buy our master off. Beloved, this is not how God wants us to live. If you are a true follower of Jesus this morning, God wants you to remember that the perfect obedience of Jesus has been credited to your account. Jesus is not struggling in Gethsemane with this excruciating pain. He's so being sorrowful to death. He's being crushed in his heart just so that you and I can work our way to God. If we can work, if we can keep ourselves, if we can end God's approval, then Gethsemane is meaningless. But Gethsemane is not meaningless. Why? It is the perfect obedience of Jesus, not our obedience, that keeps us in Christ. Beloved, you do not need to earn God's approval because Jesus has lived perfectly for you and I. You don't need to try and make God somehow be more proud of you. It's good for us to please God in many ways. But the goal shouldn't be to think that we can buy God's favor. God is already proud of you because of Jesus. You see, the gospel is not something we do. It is something done for us. The gospel is not something to be done in the future. It is something already done. But Jesus on the cross said, it is finished. Our Lord Jesus, the Lord of the elect, our joy without end, he has obeyed all God's demand for you and I, including this crushing in Gethsemane. Oh, beloved, we do not need to lean on our efforts anymore. Our Lord Jesus is enough for you and I. Jesus is both our shepherd and the obedient sheep. He is both our king of kings and the perfect citizen in the kingdom of God. He is both our God and our perfect man. All that we need for life and godliness Christ has accomplished for us. All that we need to be with God is found in Christ alone. So let us go to God this morning and repent of depending on our own effort. This morning, if you are a true follower of Jesus, ask him to help you to grow in resting on his perfect obedience for you. You see, beloved, when you start remembering that God relates to you based on the perfect obedience of Jesus, you will begin to enjoy your life with Jesus. You will live with tremendous peace every day because there will be no fear or dread about facing the wrath of God on judgment day. You will stop worrying about the future. Because you know the future is already secure in Christ. You stop worrying about what people think of you. It does not matter what our relatives think. It does not matter what our friends at work think. 
It doesn't even matter what our spouses think. What matters is what God thinks. What does God think of you, beloved? God is looking at his son in Gethsemane, who has kept the perfect record for you. He's looking at his son on the cross, who shed his blood for your sin. God looks at you as perfectly obedient before him. Your sin, not in part, as the hymn writer says, not in part, but the all, has been nailed to that cross, and you bear it no more. You see, when you know, when you start remembering that God relates to you based on the perfect obedience of Jesus, you live with joy in your Christian life. You will even be encouraged to pray more with resolute faith. You will know that because Jesus is obedient for you, your prayers are welcome to God. And you know what? And then something strange will start happening. All of those areas where you have been living disobediently will start disappearing without even trying. Why, why is that? Well, because, you see, the more you focus on Jesus, the more you take your eyes off yourself, the more you grow to love Jesus, the more you become like him. Because the more you grow to be assured of his love, his mercy for you, well, the more you want to live for him. Not as a slave, but as somebody who loves him and cares for him. As a dear child wants to please his father. Even the way we go about pleasing God is going to be different. It won't be about trying to end the favor. But just to make our father glad that we are his children. Charles Spurgeon says this. If Christ has died for me, ungodly as I am, without strength as I am, then I can no longer live in willful sin. I cannot trifle with the evil that killed my best friend. I must be holy for his sake. How can I live in sin when he has died to save me from it? You see, the more Jesus becomes, I think Charles Bergen is saying, the more Jesus becomes dear to us as our best friend. Because he has rescued us from our disobedience. The more we hate our own disobedience, the more we appreciate and rest in the loving obedience of Jesus to God for us. And the more we rest in that loving obedience of Jesus to God, the more we grow in loving obedience to Jesus. Well, may the Lord help us then to come before God in true repentance, to repent of leaning and living based on our own efforts and to rest only on him as the Lamb of God who has obeyed perfectly for us, who has died on the cross for our sins.